I'm a firm believer, and I say 95% gently because it's probably higher for people that uh, become addicted. Uh, it's, it's childhood trauma, right? We don't know how to cope as a child with the many traumas that happen. For myself, the, the sexual, the physical, the emotional, the mental, and the spiritual abuse that was endured when I was a child. How do you cope and, and, and you don't have the emotional capacity to deal with being sexually abused when you're a kid? So you choose drugs and alcohol to mask that pain so you don't have to feel, right? From Darkness to Life contains the real stories of individuals who found their way out of the darkness caused by mental health challenges and substance abuse. If these stories resonate with you and you or someone you love need help and don't know where to turn, Our Collective Journey is here for you. Please reach out when you're ready to ourcollectivejourney.ca or on Facebook at Our Collective Journey. Hey there, and welcome to another episode of From Darkness to Life and Our Collective Journey podcast here from the Plugged In Media Studio Extraordinaire Network. I don't know what we, I always forget what we call this place, but um, yeah, this is brought to you by Nicole Davis, Real Estate Medicine Hat. Thank you for your support, Nicole. And if you're in the market to buy or sell a house, contact Nicole Davis. Um, today's a little different. It's just me from OCJ here, but I'm uh, really excited about the guest that we have. I ran into him, I guess we met a little over a year ago at the National Recovery Summit. Uh, with us today is Mr. Earl Thiessen. How you doing, Earl? I'm doing well, thank you. So a little bit of background, uh, Earl is the executive director of the Oxford House out of, based out of Calgary, but uh, he can explain more than more of what they are. I know they're starting to spread out and we're, uh, we're really happy to have you. Thanks buddy. Yeah. Appreciate being here. Yeah. So, uh, we're Earl's, you know, for those of you who know me or at least have listened to more than two of these episodes, uh, I'm a little bit bullheaded and blunt about stuff as, uh, most people that know me know. And I think that's why I get along so well with Earl. He just, says it like it is and does what he says. So uh, I, I highly appreciate that about him. So getting, getting into it, Earl, why don't you tell us a little bit about your story and your journey, your journey here? hundred percent. Uh, you're correct. I don't, uh, I don't really like sugarcoating anything. Uh, addiction is, is life and death. And, and unfortunately death is part of that. And my whole philosophy is to spread that that strength and that hope that recovery is possible uh, no matter how far down you go right i mean i was uh i was homeless for 7 years people had uh, written me off basically right i didn't uh it's funny i, j- I joke with uh the alpha house cuz i work with them now in calgary but uh I always say, I'll bet you, you guys were taking bets when I left because I'd actually went through that detox. I think it was 26 times I went through detox there. And, uh, and then after the, the events that I'll get into took place, I just had enough, but uh, I can't say enough about that place. They played a, they played a huge part in, in helping me save my life. Uh, 26 times through detox, it's... It you know your your story is very inspiring, be, not just me, but I'm sure anybody is listening because you're a walking example of don't don't give up on people. Yeah, right? yeah, hundred percent. You you can't imagine imagine if we did. What about all those people that are finding themselves in recovery and their own successes? Where would they be if we? That's like I say at Oxford House. There's been people through through housing five six seven eight times yeah it uh, fifth time was the charm for me through treatment right so so who's to say when when that time is but you have to be able to provide that little glimmer of hope for people because you never know when when they're going to actually grab onto it and the big thing for me was uh i did it for myself the fifth time right i i did it for my parents or i tried to do it for my parents uh, I tried to do it for my kids, for the girl I was with. It just didn't work, 
right? The the last time uh, I went in, knock on wood, it's been 14 years, but never say never, right? But uh, I had to do it for myself. I didn't want to be a statistic. I didn't want to be, uh, you know, remembered as, as Earl, the guy that half of them aren't even remembered anymore. Yeah. Right. I just, I didn't want that for me when I, I'll, I'll go back to, uh, to a lot of the, the beginning. I, I'm a firm believer and I say 95% gently because it's probably higher for people that, uh, become addicted. Uh, it's, it's, it's childhood trauma, right? We don't know how to cope as a child with the many traumas that happen for myself, the, the sexual, the physical, the emotional, the mental, and the spiritual abuse that was endured when I was a child. How do you cope? And, and I, I call it a, a emotional response. And, and you don't have the emotional capacity to deal with being sexually abused when you're a kid. So you choose drugs and alcohol to mask that pain so you don't have to feel, right? But <clears throat> that's, that's how it was for me. It was it was those multiple abuses that just compounded my trauma, and I, I mean, I played lots of sports when I was young. I had friends and everything, but there was always that dark cloud that I didn't want to share with people because of the shame uh, that led to just to even compounding the trauma even more as I got older. Right, and I say the spiritual abuse aspect because a lot of people are going, "Well, what what exactly does that mean?" It's because I'm First Nations. My mom's First Nations. She didn't grow up that way. She was put in a foster home when she was six years old after her dad passed away, uh, and from six to sixteen, she was in the foster care system. She never spoke about that decade till the day she passed away. Yeah. Ever. She didn't identify as indigenous. She said she was of uh, Asian descent, and that's why she had the dark skin and the slanted eyes. Yeah. Right? I can only imagine what they were going through. Well, we all, we hear it now in the 50s and 60s of what actually was happening. And and now that it's it's come to light, a lot of, a lot of that aspect of that generation, those generations, because multiple generations, it's understandable why they turned to drugs and alcohol, why my mom turned to alcohol to, to deal with all the pain. Well, we say that probably once an episode in here, um, depending on who we're talking with, but you know, drugs and alcohol were not our problem. They were the solution. Yeah. Right. Drugs and alcohol were the solution, not the problem. The problem is all of the shit that we needed to numb out. Right. And whether, you know, whether that's sexual, physical, whatever, whatever kind of abuse one may have suffered, um, you know, and I will, I will agree with you that, you know, I think there's a significantly high number that is tied directly to childhood trauma. I'll never say a hundred percent because, you know, I, I'm very, always very, you know, I, I threw that, I, I threw words like everyone and always around a lot more th- in my past than I do now, mm-hmm. because there's for sure exceptions to every rule. And, and I know you know, when, when I started getting into recovery talk and, and research and some you know, development around it and education, I started coming to this thing and it was, you know, it was this, this narrative that all, all, all addiction is based on childhood trauma. And I'm like, well, no, no, no. Well, I guess I'm the exception to the rule because I didn't have any childhood trauma. And then I stop and I'm like, well, unless you consider this, 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 <laughs> you know, unless, you, unless you're counting those things, then I guess maybe, and it's like, oh, wait a minute, maybe there was some childhood trauma. And, you know, it, the thing about it is like, don't get me wrong. I don't, I think, I don't think that my childhood trauma was as significant as others. And I don't think that we need to get into that game of comparing traumas mm-hmm. because then it's, it, 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 it's, it, regardless, anything that happens that you don't have the capacity to deal with is a trauma, yeah, right? 100%. And, uh, and I can't, and I can't stress that enough to anybody listening. It, it doesn't need to be sexual abuse. It doesn't need to be physical abuse. It doesn't need to be all of those things for you to look at or hear what other people are talking and be able to relate and resonate with it. Because it took me talking to a lot of people before I could even acknowledge it. Oh, some of those things in my childhood 
would have been our traumatic experiences. So mm-hmm. I did have childhood trauma. Well, it was considered a spanking back then. It's yeah. considered child abuse now. Exactly. Right. Yeah. That's that's how much uh, it's changed. But on the same hand, you sure learn your lesson from <laughs> from that, right? Yeah. And the, and the fact that uh, I think that a lot of kids are, are preoccupied nowadays because of technology. Yeah, the social right? media it's aspect. Not, uh, we were never in the house, right? You'd hear dad whistle and you knew it was time to come home for dinner. Yeah. He'd be playing bo- baseball, hockey, whatever. But uh, never, never, well, two things that I never thought would happen in my lifetime. One is, it, one is ending up homeless, right? And to have my my brother dropped me off there uh, after I had burnt every possible bridge. And how do you do that? This The world's a large place. How do you burn every possible bridge <laughs> out there? But I managed to accomplish that, yeah. right? And and I know, I know my parents didn't give up on me, but the constant, I guess you could say, promise of sobriety or, oh, yeah, I've had enough. We've all said it. I don't know how many times, right? But... Uh, just the the belief i think maybe the the faith that, that i that i was actually serious about my recovery just wasn't i mean i didn't take it seriously until until uh, my partner jackie was murdered in 07 yeah. right it's it comes down to to how much are you willing to lose to your addiction right and that was that was the stop point for me it was really really weird how it all worked out because my brother uh i'd actually stolen a winning lottery ticket from the guys i was living with they were a crew that worked with my brother uh i'd stole a lottery ticket from there so i could get booze uh and then i uh i bought a bottle and i bought a lottery ticket and i won on that lottery ticket so i went to replace the money but they had knew (laughs) they knew already so they kicked me out they said we can't have your brother here less so he uh he dropped me off at the old drop-in center in calgary scared shitless right not knowing what i'm walking into backpack on my back and uh i fit in it was it was weird i was walking in was nerve-wracking sat down at a table 15 minutes later like i'd been there for years the table i sat down at i ended up uh, going outside and smoking a joint with the guys and that was it I had found my temporary home, I guess, where I had no accountability, zero. I didn't have to, there was no burning bridges there. It was just, uh, it was a safe place to, thank God for the place. I uh, I ended up actually getting, uh, it, it keeps you safe in a lot of aspects, but I also had gotten kicked out of there and I had no idea of other resources in the city because that's where I was. I ended up spending a whole winter outside in Calgary sleeping in a lean-to down by the sea train station, waking up, not being able to feel my fingers, not being able to feel my feet, thinking, oh, shit, right? And then the feeling would come back and I'd build a fire. But the resilience, I guess, of of, of uh, addicts goes both ways. We're, we're survivors, right? I fully, with all the hundreds of people I met on the street, many are now passed away but uh the way the resourcefulness that we adapt to on the street is just unbelievable i kept drunk every day i kept high every day i didn't work but the hustle was always on right you know what i'm talking about the hustle was always on you always get what you need and and there was times uh well, I shouldn't say always, because there was times where I was getting so sick from withdrawing that I couldn't hustle. I I I just looked rough. I felt rough. I even had people telling me, Earl, your eyes look yellow and your skin's going yellow. You better take it easy. Because eventually, like I started with alcohol, but then pharmaceuticals came into play. And my partner uh, had showed me how to triple doctor. So we would take one day, start down in Marlboro, end up at Mayfair Place down in the southeast, and we'd have a sandwich bag full of numerous pills. 
and the messed up thing, it, it looked like a, a Skittle bag of Skittles because it was all, we just mixed them all in one bag regardless of what they were. But <clears throat> that was, that was how I OD'd when, when I was homeless. I'd uh, mixed them. I just wanted to numb the pain. Yeah. Right. And I, I, I didn't really understand to the degree because I, I want to live now. Right. Uh, dying doesn't bother me, but I want to live for my children. Uh, I have a purpose here. I found that through my recovery, uh, and, and my journey through, I have the, uh, I have one of the best educations you can get to do what I do. Uh, I joke around on LinkedIn. It's, uh, on my LinkedIn page, I have MLE behind my name. I was, I was telling Brian last night. I said, people are probably trying to figure out what that means. It's the M must be for masters, but what the hell is LE? And it's my masters of life experience, <laughs> right? I was, I was kind of envious. Everybody had the MBAs. The, yeah. 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 And I thought, well, I'll make up my own <laughs> seven years of, uh, of, uh, being homeless was my education. Yeah, but, that's the equivalent to a master's. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'd like to think so, but it, it, my, my lived experience is, is what helped me through my whole, whole career. Right. I'm, I can relate when you, I was doing support work, you're interviewing people for housing and, and you can see the shame just in their posture. You could see the shame. Right. And as, as soon as I had a couple of people say, yeah, well, you don't know what I'm talking about. Right. I was, I was sexually abused or I was visitor. My, I was abandoned and I was homeless. And I said, actually, I do know what you're talking about. Yeah. And then I would tell them a bit of my story and they would just relax and they would let it all out, right? By no means was I a counselor, but it, it felt like a counseling session because it was like doing a, a step five where they're just letting it all out. And and I know how vital that is for people to start their journey, right? But being on the street uh, taught me a lot of valuable lessons, I guess you could say, but also compounded my trauma with what I had witnessed, being alone, that uh, depression, I guess you could say. Uh, thankfully, I mean, direct suicide didn't cross my mind, but indirectly I was playing with my life anyways by just taking a handful of pills that I didn't know what yeah. they were and chasing it with alcohol, right? I ended up on the riverbank down by the drop-in center. Uh, I came to and EMS is above me with the paddles in their hands. I had one shoe on, one shoe off. I tell the story all the time because this is how bad it got. And uh, I said, what the hell is going on? And he said, we lost you for almost a minute. I thought, holy shit. So I got up. I thanked the guy and I walked away. And he's saying, hey, get get back here. I said, no, thanks. I'm waving at him right <laughs> no, as I'm, I'm crossing good. the street, going to the, back to the drop-in center. That's how sick you yeah. you become, right? And I just, I didn't care. And that was the first of two ODs. And then ending up in jail, ending up in jail. People laugh at me all the time for this, but uh, they say, well, what'd, what'd you get your time for? I said, trafficking cocaine. And they go, okay, that's a pretty solid beef. Going, well, no, I was trafficking cocaine so I could buy booze, <laughs> right? <laughs> get a deuce less for, for trafficking to yeah. try and feed my, selling one drug that I wasn't into then. Eventually I got into it, but I wasn't into it. And that's why people trusted me selling it. Yeah. Because I would sell it, make you my cut, light, and go yeah. to the liquor store. Yeah, uh, just uh, yeah, just a sick, sick man. <laughs> but uh, all those years on the street and uh, not really seeking help for myself, seeing multiple people die. You know, I had I had spouts where I'd go to my brother's house. The good thing about uh, my brother was he was uh, he always had a home. He always had a room there for me. If I got so sick and went to detox, I'd call him. He'd say, well, come back, right? Your room's still downstairs, but you have to work for me. And it was it was just the cycle. I would go there. I would stay there for a month or two. I'd work, make mitfuls of money, get my last check for like three grand. This is like 20 years ago yeah. for like three grand. And I'd go downtown and play kingpin for a weekend and then be homeless for another eight months. Yeah. Right. And I just kept doing that, kept doing that. And, uh, and then I had met, uh, Jackie, she's from the blood tribe out here. 
and uh, I'd actually had my uh, my ACL torn from uh, Calgary's finest. They uh, kicked me in the in the knee and and tore my ligament, so I had a leg brace on, and I'd went into detox, and uh, I was pretty immobile. But uh, that's like I'd seen Jackie, but that's how I met her. She came up and she asked if she could get me a coffee or if I needed anything, if I wanted to smoke, and that's how we met. And we were together for two and a half years. Went to treatment together. Lived uh, with her auntie and her cousin. The attempts were there, but they were always uh, there was no healing involved. It was just having a place that it's not like we had a program to follow, anything like that. We just had a roof over our head with with nothing else, no support. So we would always end up back on the street. <clears throat> One of the things that I think is a, a misnomer among the general population is that like people don't want to get clean. They don't want to get sober. And and almost every one of the clients that we speak to, they do. They just don't know how. Yeah. Right. And and it's not. And a lot of it is, you know, they've they've from the years of uh, drug and alcohol abuse, they've lost the capacity to advocate for themselves. So you know, they're not they're not particularly articulate. They're not they're not able to really dig their heels in and demand something. Um, and it's really frustrating because we, we've had clients that we've, we've helped support and advocate for, like even into emergency where he's got them in emergency, trying to get them in to see, into treatment, into a treatment bed, into detox. And, you know, we've got art, articulate, educated people advocating on their behalf and they're still not successful. Mm -hmm. So how, how many times does somebody try that without the capacity to advocate for themselves and get rejected before they give up? Right. Exactly. Yeah. No, Exactly. And that's why we can't give up, right? Yeah. At some point in time, and I guarantee you a lot of people figured I was going to die on the street, right? I mean, there was times where I thought I was going to die on the street. There's a couple of times I got really scared thinking, shit, is this, is this how I'm going to go? Are they going to find my body somewhere because I'm not hanging out with anybody? I'm by myself using, and which happens so often now with the, with the opioids. <clears throat> but... uh in 07, <clears throat> 2007, I was, uh, I was at my brother's, uh, I just went back and, uh, I'd went downtown to, to find Jackie and, uh, and tell her to go to her, not tell her, ask her to go to her sister's house. <clears throat> I think I had talked to her and she asked if I could find Jackie and she told her to come, come to their home. So I found her and she was, she was too sick. Right. The withdrawals are brutal, especially when you're, you know, using multiple substances and, uh, and then you, you don't like when I, when I cleaned up, <clears throat> no, when this, that's not, that wasn't the time I cleaned up it was before that I'd went into detox. Uh, I think it might've actually even been to, uh, to go to Jackie's service, but I had, uh, I had dropped, had two grand mal seizures and chewed through a third of my tongue. That's how bad my withdrawals were. It took me five days to be able to even function. Uh, I'm sure there's many people out there that can relate. But uh, when I when I went down to get her, she said she was too sick. Uh, I could tell she was withdrawing. And she said she wanted to go get the cure is what we used to say. <clears throat> so I said a couple uh, unsavory words. Uh, we had a little argument and we parted ways. And the next morning, I, I went down there to apologize to her, find her and apologize to her. And her cousin came up and was crying and apologizing, saying I couldn't save her. And I had no idea what the hell he was talking about. And then he hit the ground and he said, Jackie's gone. She's, she's dead. I said, what the hell are you talking about? And he said, she got stabbed last night and she passed away. And I just, I was fucking crushed, right? I was, I was, that just, again, the only way I knew how to deal with it. Yeah, shut that, <clears throat> Especially shut that with carrying off. the guilt of what was said the night before and not being able to apologize. That still hits me hard, 
But I know through reconnecting with my culture and prayer ceremony, when I, I, every time I, I'm in a sweat lodge, I pray for her and to her. I know she forgives me, right? And I know that she supports me with, uh, with everything I'm doing now. But <clears throat> for four months, I just went off the handle. I, I just didn't care. Uh, two and a half years we were together. Uh, when it came to relationships, if, if, uh, if that was the correct <laughs> term back then, it was a pretty messed up relationship. But that was, that was all I, I knew for the two and a half years. And to, to have that taken away that way and not being able to apologize just devastated me. Right. I'd, uh, I, I came to my last use is very vivid in my mind. Half of it is what I heard because I don't remember cause I was blacked out. And then, uh, and the rest I remember because it's, it's when I had my awakening, I guess you could say I had my epiphany, uh, but I, I woke up on the, in the shopper's drug mart on 17th Avenue in Calgary. I was locked in a back door in one of the rooms there. I had no idea what the hell was going on. I had no idea how I got there. People pounding on the door. Uh, I opened up the door. It was the police. Tackled me, threw me on the ground, handcuffed me. Uh, apparently, I had tried to rip a cash register off the counter. And when that didn't work, I went to the back room. <laughs> Good criminal, eh? Hide and lock myself in here. <laughs> yeah. they'll, they'll never find me. <laughs> <laughs> but I couldn't believe it, right? I go, holy smokes. <clears throat> but I don't remember any of it. But I, uh, the, officer said to, the officer said to me, he said, uh, looks like I'm arresting another drunk Indian, is what he said to me. Yeah. And then I piped up, still half snapped and said, looks like I'm getting arrested by another asshole <laughs> word I don't want to use because I work with a lot of them now. I have a different, <laughs> I have a different respect for yeah. officers and what they go through now, right? That, that was uh, my perception then was the per perception from an addict that didn't care, an alcoholic that didn't care and didn't view them as actually helping. Yeah. And that also ties into here because they kicked the crap out of me. I pulled into a back alley. I knew it was going to happen. It was probably the fourth or fifth time that that happened. But uh, I knew it was going to happen. There was a cruiser in the alley. The van pulled in, cruiser pulled up, and I said, oh, here we go. Yeah. And they they really worked me over, broke my foot, shut my eye. I was lumped up. My calves were purple from them kicking me in the calves. It was just uh, brutal. I was a mouthpiece. I don't think anybody deserves to get beat like that, but I know my mouth when I'm drinking and I know the lack of respect I had for authority then. So not that it was warranted, but you know, a good cuff in the head probably was, <laughs> but, uh, I had 11 warrants for my arrest and I had, uh, went to the drunk tank, obviously, uh, I was drinking and using anything I could get my hands on then. Like when you're talking bottom, I was the bottom and I, I joke with people cause I have been in the gutter when the, when the Calgary Flames did their run all the way to the end. I was homeless then. Yeah. And uh, I woke up after the Red Mile thing. We were there. People are handing us booze. It was great if you were an alcoholic and you yeah. were homeless. <laughs> but uh, I woke up the next morning in the gutter with a 40 of beer as, uh, as my pillow. So I actually been in the gutter. But... Uh, when I got arrested, I, I had 11 warrants and I was sitting in there and, and I had, I had the visual, the thought popped in my mind because I saw it for Jackie on the doors of all the shelters and everywhere. It says, uh, uh memorial service for, and it has that homeless person's name on it. And they would honor that person in, in the buildings. And I had the visual of, of uh, memorial for Earl Deason and it just, it hit home. I, I didn't want that. I knew I was defeated in every sense of the word. I was just done. And I had went, uh, went in front of a JP who was actually up in Edmonton. It was, it was, uh, over the intercom and, uh, you know, he read, said I had 11 charges, 11 warrants, blah, blah, blah. Asked if I had anything to say for myself. And I said, yeah, I need help. I said, I need help dealing with the murder of my partner. And, and I need help with my addiction. 
issues. And then he asked her name. And I told him. And he said, my condolences, Mr. Thiessen. I heard about this up in Edmonton. And uh, he said, I'll tell you what. I'm going to release you on your own recognizance. This was after I did two years for trafficking cocaine. I, I was always good for a grand or two bail. Yeah. And he said, I'm going to release you on your own recognizance. Go get the help that you want and need and clean up all these criminal charges. And that, that was the difference. And I always say it now, want and need are light years apart. Yeah. yeah. Every person that, that, that has an addiction issue needs to clean up whether you want to or not is going to be that defining factor on, on, on your journey. And I actually wanted to there the first time for me, I didn't want to do it for anyone else. And I, I think what's critical in that story is, is the recognition of that window of opportunity that we have with clients, right? Cause one of the frustrations that I have is, is the business hours that a lot of agencies keep, right? Cause you know, it's, well, it's not that hard when you think about it and you're, you know, living the normal life and it's like, well, nine to five, that's when things are open. So go get the help you need. But it's like, man, if you've never come down from below at 4.30 AM on a Sunday, you don't, you have no idea that that's the moment that I'm, that I want to get clean mm -hmm. by the next day. I might just think I need to again, but that window of wanting to is when, you, you know, you got to strike when the iron's hot and if yeah. the, and if the supports aren't there in place and it sounds like you were lucky enough to have somebody recognize that's where you're at and give you the opportunity. That, that was, uh, one of my first gifts of recovery. I actually had my, uh, not my Oxford house's staff. We had a meeting and, uh, I had walked out, I had said, uh, cause we were having the discussion about the hours that they put in. Because I always, uh, I'm very mindful of that after what I went through as a support worker, you, you burn out and you're tired constantly. And, uh, I was saying, well, you guys shut your phones off at night and they're going, well, no. I said, well, you should. I said, what if an emergency happens? I said, if it's an emergency, they can leave a voicemail and everything. And then I just, I'm listening to myself talk and I'm thinking, Earl, that's, that's the way it was before everything has changed. Addiction has evolved, I guess you could say. No. So my perception of, of, uh, a relapse being an alcohol relapse and the guy just needing to sleep it off, we considered that emergency a decade ago when I was a support worker, but emergency now could be an OD. Yeah. A death. You're not there in the morning. So I just, I said, you know what? I'm just going to, and I left the meeting, right? Because they're right. Yeah. They're right. I'm not going to tell them that. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but they'll probably listen to this so they can hear it now. But but that that woke me up. I'm, I'm always teachable. We have to be. I'm, I'm always learning. And, and it's good to hear that. It's good to hear the front line because I'm not, I'm not directly front line anymore. It's good to hear that coming out of them because they know how critical, like you just said, in that moment, it, it could be that phone call that they pick up at 930 at night that saves or helps save or changes this person's life. Right. So I just, I just got out of that and, and they were right. Right. I just, I just worry about the, the burnout rate with, uh, with our staff because you, you have 27 houses, five people, a house. And one, two, three, four, five staff dealing with those. At one time, it was it was in Calgary. There was two staff dealing with uh, about twenty three houses. That's and we split them in half. That's more than a treatment center holds. Yeah. One person. So why don't we get into that a bit? What what is the Oxford House? What do you guys do? What's your role there? We uh, we are we are peer supported recovery housing. I'm a huge, huge supporter of peer support. I think when you have those supports around you, uh, accessible, I mean, just by turning sideways in your chair, it, it makes a huge difference. But, uh, we've been around for, I think we're in our 27th year now, uh, for 20 years, we never advertised anything. There was like zero advertising for Oxford house who just stayed under the radar, uh, had more houses then because we had rentals and, and we just, uh, we promoted through the treatment centers and everything. Ron was a brilliant man, the founder of Oxford house and his wife, Eve, 
she was the executive director at uh, the Alpha House uh, a while back and at uh, Sunrise. But the the connection that they had with the recovery community just kept all the houses full and everything, right? There was always space for, for people to come. But uh, the peer support, I can't, I can't speak enough about it because it played a, a very vital role in, in my life being taken back, I guess you could say, uh, to have the people in the house going through the similar, not the same, but similar, some the same, but similar things that you're going through in your recovery journey when you're just starting just had such a massive impact on on my life and guys in the my best friend was my roommate i was homeless with my best friend he was the best man at my wedding roger we we went through the same thing and then talking with each other and growing through and talking about our traumas and our abuses and they're very similar so we just connected and like he's uncle Raji to my kids now everything it's it's just the, the peer support aspect is amazing uh, everybody in the house has a responsibility. Accountability is huge. You, you know, there's a, a president, a secretary, chore coordinator, uh, treasurer. Did I say that already? Safety supervisor. Uh, everybody has a role and a responsibility to each other, to that home, right? And they take care of the house themselves, do all the cleaning, do their own cooking, fully furnished right down to your pillowcase. It was such a, it was such a blessing to be able to, I actually finished treatment while I was in an Oxford home, but that's, that's, uh, the premise of Oxford house. Having you, we support you. You have the safe place to stay. Your roommates support you. Uh, and I, I developed three other models since then, since the original model, because I, I saw the gaps, uh, and through my own lived experience, right? Uh, we just, uh, we evolved, we, we have entry-level housing now, and that came from talking to a resident who was getting asked to leave. You have to be productive in an Oxford home. You can't, it's not three hots in a cot, right? And I know a lot of people don't see it that way. They're saying, well, that's not very supportive if you're, you know, forcing people to go to work and go to school. We're not forcing anybody to do anything. If you want your home, you have to be productive. Right. If, if you're, if we don't, uh, we don't want people sitting around the house and doing nothing because that's not conducive to their recovery. Yeah. You're just going to fall back in. Yeah. Yeah. Right. You're going to get bored and say, and I did it for six months myself. <laughs> I was, I was doing treatment, you know, part-time during the day, finishing it. And then I would go downtown and I would hang out with my friends after six months. I'm going, what the hell are you doing? I'm leaving when they're getting hammered. I'm still clean and sober. You know, how is this improving your life? Yeah. It's, it's not so, and, and that's why we, we want people to be active, right? You either seek employment, seek education. I'm a big advocate for education, uh, or you seek volunteering full-time and you do your two recovery-based meetings. We don't say 12 step, you have to do AA, you have to do C. No, it's whatever's working for you. Yeah. Just something recovery-based, support yourself, right? Uh, it's just changing lives. But throughout all that, I, uh, I noticed that one pre-treatment housing, right. And I couldn't believe it. I'm, I'm going through it and I'm developing it. I'm thinking, why the hell didn't anybody think of this before? I'm thinking people probably did think about it, but how to do it. I mean, you can have a home and, uh, and get people in there and have them live there, uh, until they make the decision to go to treatment. But that's not what I developed the model for. The model is developed to support you and you support yourself in there as well uh, while you're on the wait list to get into residential treatment because we've all heard the lengthy yeah, wait times. Six, right? eight weeks at best. Yeah. So I, I uh, but I had a safeguard and I don't, I think that might've been why a lot of people didn't because people are saying, how are you going to put five people fresh out of detox in a home and expect success. Well, that's not what we're doing. We have a house lead in there, a person who has some recovery time under their belt and they help guide the people. You hit five recovery-based meetings a week. You do your chores, you learn how to cook, right? You 
advocate for yourself to get into treatment. You call around and, and call the treatment centers. We'll advocate for you as well, and it helps uh, helps uh, speed up the process. Uh, and also now we're uh, we're starting uh, a collaboration with Simon House. Uh, they're a men's treatment center in Calgary, and when we have men in pre-treatment waiting for treatment, we can call them, and they'll work on getting them in there. And then when their people graduate from Simon House and need recovery housing, they come into Oxford House, right? Yeah, and yeah. A, a real collaboration. We're we're working through all the details and everything, but we have to we have to be careful when we say collaboration because it it really i mean yes uh i think benefit is the wrong word it'll support what each organization does but it's going to benefit the number one stakeholder in the sector and that's the, the client, client resident yeah. you know that's that that's what it has to benefit but that that's the type of collaborations we want and then uh having entry level housing people weren't uh people that were chronically homeless weren't looking for work and and there was a guy that was leaving and i had pulled up to the house i said what's going on he said i'm i, I got evicted I'm, i haven't been doing anything looking for work the guy said that i need to find somewhere else to stay I said hold on a second why aren't you looking for work you've had a month he said earl i'm ashamed i don't know how to do a resume i don't know how to do an interview. I don't even know where to start. I said, okay, you know, thanks. You're not going anywhere. Go back in the house. I'll talk to the guys, blah, blah, blah. And then I developed entry-level housing for the chronically homeless and institutionalized where you have twice the amount of time to get settled and we have resources to work with you to get you to that point, your self-esteem, mm -hmm. your confidence, everything is, is, is developed, your recovery capital, as we say right uh, through prospect they support them through they find employment or or they start going to school for upgrading or or volunteering and then we just move them out of that house into uh, a long-term oxford house and we just open up that door for them to come through their pre-treatment and entry level are our rotation homes i call them because people the door's opening and closing all the time because people are coming in, going to treatment and pre-treatment, opens up the door for more people. It's a huge gap, right? We need those houses everywhere. Yeah. Uh, and then entry level, same thing. And then we just move them into a, into a long-term home closer to where they're working and that opens up uh, another door. And then the, the indigenous homes, peer and culturally supported, right? We've had, uh, we've had them for around three years now, two years. Yeah, two and a half years. When we started with uh, with one Wolf Thin Legs at uh, Barlow, now we have five, three in Calgary, uh, two in Edmonton, and they are are actually peer and culturally supported. We have ceremonies. We have elders come in and do sharing circles. We do the sweat lodges. They're allowed to smudge in their in their homes. Right, which wasn't allowed before because it yeah. was everybody Smoke. didn't yeah. want that. Yeah. So we have the smudging table set up. They're they're culturally connected homes. Yeah. I'm just amazed. You know, 15 years ago I was sleeping under a bridge, and now I'm the executive director of an organization that helped carve my recovery path and and helped save my life. And I've I've really honed in on that in the last year or so. Is is you know there's. I don't ever want to be so arrogant as to say, here's, here's how you get to recovery, mm -hmm. right? There's, there's a million paths and I, I haven't walked, I've only walked one of them, right? So my experience is very limited as much as I'm engaged in this, my experience is very limited. But the one thing that rings true with everybody that is, is kind enough to share their story with me is everybody that seems to be successful in recovery, it comes down to two things. and That's uh, community and purpose. If you can find your community and you can find your purpose, your, your recovery capital automatically goes up, right? You're, I, I won't ever bet against somebody who's found a purpose and, and found a community. And I know for me, me particularly, you know, you talked a lot about guilt and shame and, and that's, that's what consumed me, right? That's what kept me, that's what kept me drinking. That's what kept me drugging. That's what kept me just being an asshole, really. Um, and the and 
when I first got clean, I, you know, I know our listeners have heard this story before, but you maybe haven't. Um, when I first got clean, I was so desperate to find some grace and find some compassion for myself because I just hated myself. I wanted, you know, uh, I was suicidal. I did want to die. And uh, every every professional I went to, every spiritual leader I went to, everybody's like, well, you just got to forgive yourself. You know, step one's forgive yourself. And I'm like, cool, fuck, can, can stop telling me that and tell me how to do that, right? Yeah. Because uh, it's not just as easy as, okay, well, I'm going to sit myself down and have a stern talking to with myself. Like my brain doesn't have the capacity at that time to, you know, think like that. And for me, it was as soon as, as soon as I realized that all of, you know, I, I it's, it's a fine line. I don't ever want to say I don't regret what I did because I did, I do, I do feel bad about all the people I hurt. Right. But at the same time that path led me to a place that I have all these experiences and life skills and life experience that I can relate to somebody and help them. And so that shift for me shifted to all of this has purpose now. And that shame just went away. And I don't know if it's, you know, I'm using air quotes. I forgave myself, but I found purpose in myself and that's what, save my life really. And then finding a community of like-minded people and the, and the deeper I get into this, the bigger my community gets. And, mm-hmm. you know, now I've got people in Calgary, we've got people, you know, it's just, it's, uh, the, the deeper you get into it, the more people you help, the more messages you share, the, you see, you see the potential in people that sometimes they don't see in themselves. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. And that's, I think that's one of the biggest gifts of sobriety, right. Is, is my, partner and one of the founders in, in OCJ, Damien, first time we ever spoke at a treatment center, me and him together, as soon as we got outside, he goes, man, I bet you you've never felt that high in your life because it's better than any line of cocaine you ever did. Yeah. Hey, just watching that light turn on in people and seeing a spark of hope in somebody, you know, you walk into a lot of those rooms and it's just hopeless and despair and people that aren't in a good place. Right. Yeah. And you spend an hour talking to them about your experience, you know, this, and I don't even talk to them about what, what brought them there. Right. It's just, this is my story. Yeah. And seeing that give them hope made it, you know, again, I got to be careful because I hurt a lot of people. I don't want to ever say it was worthwhile, but at least it created some positive out of all the negative. Yeah. And, and that was remarkable. hundred percent. I'm, I'm a firm believer that I didn't really start healing or forgiving myself until I spoke about what I went through, what had happened to me. I didn't tell anybody. That kept me addicted for 20 years, right? Almost took my life. Just not having the courage, I guess you could say, to to put myself out there. Like the, I was stigmatizing myself. Yeah. <laughs> right? And and that, uh, I mean, that almost cost me my life. I it's It's just... I'm a firm believer that when I experienced my trauma, I disconnected from me. When I entered recovery for myself and I, 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 uh, I started uh, engaging in my culture, I reconnected with who I was right? and I'm still reconnecting. It's, you know, it's, it's a lifelong journey. I, I, I'm, I'm happy to say I, I have a life I'm here today to continue that, right? We always say one day at a time because you never know when uh, when the big guy's going to pull your ticket, but I will be uh, an advocate for people just like me until the day I die. Yeah. That's my, per- that's not what I do now. It's not work. It's a blessing. It's a gift, right? And and I'm 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 finding out through everything that's happening that, our organization for what we specifically do with the peer supported model we have is the most diverse, the largest in the country. And we're only in Alberta. Yeah. We're only in Alberta and we're still the biggest in, in the country. I could only imagine if there were 27 homes in Saskatchewan, in BC, in, in Manitoba. Yeah. Ontario, if, if this was, I could just only imagine the, the lives that would be altered or the, the opportunity to be altered. Cause I'm, I'm, I'm also, uh, I pay attention to the accountability piece 
I don't want somebody holding my hand through somebody opening up a door for me. Beautiful. I need to walk through that myself. I need to put some work in and effort in. You've probably heard a hundred times in the rooms, put as much uh, into your recovery as you put into your using. Yeah. If if we all got to a space where that was was doable, it would be a beautiful place. For right? sure. But some some people aren't aren't there, and I get that. And I've been saying for years because people always say you got to meet a person where they're at. I get that. Don't leave them there. Yeah. Right. Do something to help. I'm not against all the. Uh, the safe consumption sites. I'm not out there with the banner saying, shut this down. Have some, I'll watch my language here because I get pretty, <laughs> I, have some resources, have some freaking support, man. How yeah. are people going to know that recovery is possible if you're not supporting them? At least plant the seed, right? Even when I see uh, a homeless person who's where I was at and they've got the cardboard sign, I call them over. Right, I have two bucks in my hand, and one of my cards. I hand out more cards to to homeless people than I do to professionals. Yeah, because I want to plant that seed, and I say, "Hey, dude, I've I've been where you are," and I t- I tell them, total stranger. It's, I was homeless for seven years, man. I'm an alcoholic. I'm an addict. Right, I suffered every trauma. I've been I've been where you are. Right, here's two bucks. Get yourself a coffee. This is where I'm at now. Here's my card. I'm the executive director of the Oxford House Foundation. We have 27 recovery homes in the province, four different models. If you get to a place where you want to go to detox, call me. You get into detox, we'll get you into pretreatment. Get into pretreatment, we'll advocate on your behalf and get you into treatment. When you're done your treatment, you can come back into an Oxford house. There is no time limit on how long you can stay. We've got people that have been with us for five years, eight years, and it's. I ask them, what's keeping you here? It's the same answer every time. The guys in the house, yeah. the girls in the house, the peer support, having living with people that are going through what I'm going through. It's a blessing. I'm afraid if I leave that I'll relapse. Nobody's asking me to leave. Yeah. I just wanted to know. Yeah. And then I walk away with a huge smile on my face because yeah. that's what we do. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's pretty cool. That was one of the things that really struck me with, uh, uh, that I could relate between OCJ and Oxford House is when I got, I was lucky enough to come up. I don't know what that was a few weeks ago and, uh, get a tour of one of the houses and meet just about all your staff, I think, and hung out to your office and, and to hear them share their stories and, you know, like you've got a, plenty of staff that have been through your system. Yeah. And, uh, and that's very similar to what I see with OCJ is where, you know, we don't, none of us studied this in a textbook. We didn't read a paper. We didn't write a paper. We don't have a degree. Well, again, I'm sorry, Ryan, with the exception of Ryan, none <laughs> of us are actually educated again, with the exception of Ryan. Um, but yeah, I really like that, uh, MLE, right? <laughs> like I've, well, the, the, um, I should patent it. You should really. <laughs> what, what I compare it to a lot is, uh, you know, if you finally got to a place in your life that you've, you've always wanted to go on this trip to Europe and you finally, you finally are in a position to be able to do it. Do you go to the mall and hire a travel coordinator who's read every book and seen so many slideshows and studied all these manuals and to put together the ultimate trip for you? Or do you want to fly there and meet somebody who's lived there and knows the smells on the streets and knows which restaurants are what and has a buddy that'll hook you up at this place? And it's it's no contest, right? Mm-hmm. You want somebody who's been there, not just learned about it. And yeah. and and I don't say that to like negate the role of professionals in this. It's a huge role. Um, and, but what I see is the role of you know in our organization, a recovery coach, is to be able to build a relationship with somebody that they're willing to trust us enough to help them navigate their recovery. And that trust and credibility comes from and only from lived experience. And and I shouldn't, you know, I hate to use words like only and always, but um, in my experience, anyway, that's the case. I know I, I met many professionals, doctors, psychologists, and none of them, and again, it was, it was, it was probably my sick thinking at the time, but none of them had the credibility that I was listening to them. And it took somebody with lived experience to go, mm-hmm. Hey, this is my story. And I was like, holy shit, maybe there is hope, right? It's that trust, yeah. right? That's uh, 
after all this shit we go through, you're always squinting out the corner of your eyes at everybody going, what the hell does this guy want out of me, right? Yeah. But when you're talking to a fellow addict or alcoholic and they're telling you, you know, not everybody's journey is the same, but they're letting you know what they went through and where they're at. There's there's a sense of trust that's developed, right? And uh, faith, you could say, that you have in that person that they're not going to steer you wrong. Yeah. Yeah, because we're not out to... We're not out to impress and like, you know, I talked about earlier, it's not a comparison of my trauma or my experience or how bad it got for me. It's because it is regardless of those experiences, what, what it comes down to the vast majority of the time is those internal feelings, you know, whether they're all the same, right? Like regardless of the trauma, regardless of the experience, regardless of how far off the beam you fell, your homelessness, your criminal record, regardless of all that that feeling of a void and something's missing is consistent in every, and I will say that every single story mm -hmm. is, is that undescribable void that we're trying to fill with whatever it might be. Right. Yeah. So I think that's, that's what, uh, that's what I found is that void for me was filled with community and purpose. And when I found those two things, I finally became whole. Right. And it's interesting that you talk about the first nations culture because, uh, our, our shared friend, uh, Trevor Pelchier from, uh, man, I love that guy. Yeah. Beautiful man. I've had the opportunity to, um, sit with him in, in a lot, in a sweat and do a sweat with him and get a little more engaged with the community out at Siksika. And I'm fascinated by it. Like I grew up, um, I grew up in the Catholic church. Well, as in the Catholic church as one gets. And I never, ever connected with it, right? And so, especially when I came into recovery, a lot of talk of God and, and uh, you know, a higher power and prayer. And I immediately disconnected from that because I'm like, that's mm -hmm. not, it's not what I'm about. I don't believe that, blah, blah, blah. But the more I get to learn about the First Nations culture, the more I, I like it and I'm intrigued by it and I want more of it. And and uh, I'm really thankful for for guys like you and guys like Trevor and like Jerry for, for sharing their culture, mm -hmm. um, in such a light that, you know, it, for, for me, it's not about reconciliation. It's, you know, I, I, I just want to know cause I'm fascinated by it cause mm -hmm. it makes more sense to me. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and that's, I guess that's how I pay my respects to your culture is just, I want more of it. I want, want to learn as much as I can because, yeah, I can connect to that far better than I can connect to anything that I had experienced previously. So thank you for touching on that. You were speaking about the void that pe that was my void because I never had it. Yeah. Right. I never had a connection to my culture when I was in Sunrise Healing Lodge and I was there for me. That's the treatment center I went through. Uh, I went into the ceremony room. That was the first time I cried around sober, <laughs> right? You know, when we're drunk, we yeah, lot, get a little sobby. <laughs> when I was, uh, when I was sober, I just let it out. I cried in, in the men's group and talked about Jackie and what had happened. And I just, I was just, my cup was empty and it was filling and it was the connection to my culture, smudging, feeling, feeling, just finding what I was missing. I knew it. I made sure I did my step five with a female indigenous elder representation of my mom, two and a half hours of, I had my step four. I had written down what, uh, what I thought everybody wanted to hear. I didn't even look at that. Yeah. I just, something happened when I walked in that room and I just let it all out. Every type of trauma cried for two and a half hours. I walked out of the elders room, uh, and I knew my life had changed. And, and it was hev heavily to do with my reconnection to my culture. I just so, so grateful. And that's why the cultural component is so important. COVID really put a damper on that, but the cultural component is, is extremely important. If, if we're say, and it bothered me because I always say peer and culturally supported. When COVID happened, we couldn't get together. Yeah. But I'm still saying, and I'm thinking, well, they're smudging. So I guess that's a cultural connection, but we're not doing ceremony. So when, when we like, we're, we're full at it, 
now, sweat sharing circles, uh, men's healing circles, everything in Edmonton, Calgary. We connected with a, a wonderful gentleman, uh, Amy, our staff, and Tim up in Edmonton connected with Fred from Alexander First Nation. It's just, everything is just happening. I'm so happy. People are are, are having the, the opportunity to get the help that they want and need, yeah. right? It just, this isn't work for me. It's not work. It's, it's uh, I, I get to raise my family. I get to see people succeed. You know, it, it, it's, it's an honest program, as we say. So there, there are, uh, I don't want to say failures, but there are the, the non-successes that happen, right? Uh, people do die from use and it's, it kills me. I'm raising my, my, my niece. I call her my, it just sounds weird when I say my niece, my daughter. Because my just over two years ago we lost my sister in law to to an overdose. It just devastated my wife, devastated her family, little baby, and and at the time fourteen year old son. Their mom's gone. It just uh, it kills me. It's choking me up now when I think about it. Because <clears throat> I couldn't imagine that, and it's not uncommon. Yes, we talk about the successes, but there's also the heartbreaking reality of what addiction is doing. And that little girl looks at me, I'm dad. That's a gift in itself, but there's times where it was extremely difficult to do everything that I'm doing and having this baby. And, and I feel a bit of guilt because there were times where I wanted to give up. And then me and my wife would talk. If we give up on this baby, she's three, going to be four. Her birthday's actually tomorrow. We're having a birthday party for her. If we give up on this baby, what what's going to happen, right? We took her in because we didn't want her in foster care. We didn't want her to go there. Mom, mom I know mom would have taken her. My mother-in-law would have taken her, but she's it, she's just, she's she's not old, but she's getting up there. It's a big responsibility. But she calls me dad and I'm, I'm, I'm coming to terms now that, that, uh, you know, we, we originally stepped in to help and be there to support, but I'm her dad and that's, that's the way it's going to be. Yeah. Uh, eventually I'll give her the option. I was, we were talking the one time she's at the table. I said, what's, what's your name? And she goes, Sarah. And I said, Sarah, what? And she goes, Sarah. And I said, Sarah Thiessen? And she goes, Sarah Thiessen. Now would I ask her name? It's not it's not her legal last name. Yeah. But when she said that, I just, I melted, right? I love being a father. I wasn't able to be a dad for my older two kids. I call them my, you know, that's when I was in active addiction. I call my kids now my recovery kids. Yeah. But uh, I didn't, I wasn't a father to them and I can own that. I can admit that, right? I was by no means was I a dad to my first two kids. I was in active addiction and, and that came first. And that's the harsh reality. I'm I'm just glad that I was able to break the cycle with with my kids. They know what I do. They know I was homeless. They know I was an alcoholic. They know all that. I'm not hiding that from them. They're twelve and nine. They've known this for years. I'm not hiding that from them because they need to know this is where this cycle, this is where it's my responsibility and I have the capability to help steer them in the right direction. Once they're at a certain age, it's up to them. But while they're growing up and what they see is recovery and dad not drinking, dad not smoking, dad being dad. Yeah. That's that's my opportunity to to help the next generation. But it just, you know, I get all emotional with Sarah because it, it came close. Yeah. To, to us, uh, you know, not giving her up, but to trying to find an alternative. It, it's just difficult, but it's getting easier. I look at her now, it, it just, it, she just melts my heart, right? She's, she's such a beautiful little girl and, and I have to understand that, uh, that this is lifelong. It's not a temporary, I can't look at it as temporary. This, this little girl views me as dad and views my wife as, as mom. Yeah. So we're back, we're back in that <laughs> mode again, right? Yeah. 52 years old and I'm starting all over again, yeah. but, uh, I'm okay with that now. It, it took a lot of soul searching, right? I'm not perfect by no means. Am I perfect? I'm, I'm still working on myself. And, and that was a big lesson for me to, to realize what, what my purpose is. And my purpose here is to help other people. 
find their way through whatever it is that's in it's a gift i think that is a great way to wrap this up i could talk to you for hours buddy <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm hoping we have more than one of these conversations um any any last thoughts Man, I say it all the time. Recovery is possible. Give yourself a chance. Don't don't give up on yourself, right? Come talk to someone like me or you or the, our story isn't uncommon. No. It's just not, uh, people tend to focus on the negative and you can do nine things ro- right and one thing wrong. People are going to focus on the one thing wrong. Just give yourself a chance. Take that chance. Reach out. Talk to somebody. Ask for help. It's okay. We're, we're all out. Uh, we all need help. Yeah. I still do, so... Awesome. Thanks so much for making time for us. I appreciate it. I love you, man. It's you betcha, uh, it's a pleasure to get to know you and call you a friend. And we didn't even get to talk about wrestling, which I was really excited to talk to you about. <laughs> so you're going to have to come back now. <laughs> and with that, uh, again, thank you to our sponsor, Nicole Davis Real Estate. Um, thanks to the guys here at uh, at the studio and uh, and I guess the end from our collective journey from darkness to life. Thanks for listening. From Darkness to Life is an Our Collective Journey podcast. These are the true stories of struggles and triumphs against addiction and mental health challenges. If these stories resonate with you and you or someone you love need help and don't know where to turn, Our Collective Journey is here for you. Please consider supporting OCJ by visiting ourcollectivejourney.ca and clicking donate. All proceeds go to supporting the health and wellness of people in our community. Hosted by members of Our Collective Journey. Produced by Rob Pape. Engineered, edited, and directed by Dave Cruikshank. From Darkness to Life is a plugged-in media network exclusive. Thank you for listening.